I know that I want to be successful in my life. And I, I have always pictured myself in a successful role, whatever what that looks like for me. Right. But I know in order to get there, I have to push my comfort limits and I have to try some things that are going to scare, you know, me and, and, and I probably will fail at. So I have to take those risks when they're presented to me. Um, and, and I think that's what we've done well is like, we've, we've figured out how to evaluate the risks or evaluate what we're going to jump into where we're confident enough that we can make an impact that even if we fail, the downside's pretty low. to the Maximum Enthusiasm Podcast, the exploration of life fully optimized with Megan Hotman. Today's episode is brought to you by my friends over at Wild Zora. You can learn more about these products at wildzora.com. And if you want to save 15% off of your purchase, Please reference the link in today's show notes, as well as on our website, MaximumEnthusiasm.com. I've been doing more and more van trips and was looking for healthy foods to take with me on the road, and Wild Zora once again fit the bill. They make these amazing dehydrated cereals and meals that all you have to do is add hot water, and you have a super nutritious, delicious, hot meal made from organic ingredients. They also have soups and meat and veggie bars. I'm a huge fan of everything that they make. Um, The couple behind Wild Zora, Josh and Zora, are amazing people, and I know them through Entrepreneurs Organization. It's a husband-wife duo, and they're just incredible humans running a really incredible business out of their Loveland headquarters. Their vision is that everyone deserves a healthy alternative to all the sugary, high-carb snacks on the market. And at Wild Zora, they believe that we can all be in control of our diet and our energy levels. We can eat happier and healthier and be happier and healthier. I highly recommend their products wherever your adventures take you. And if you are not a meat eater, not to worry. There are vegan options as well. So check them out at wildzora.com. And if you want to save 15% off of your purchase, be sure to check out our website, MaximumEnthusiasm.com or the show notes in Apple Podcast for a clickable link where you can start your shopping today. Hey, you guys, welcome back. It has been a minute since I recorded my last episode, and I apologize for that. There was a lot that happened during the holiday season. If you listened to my last episode, it was the eulogy that I wrote for my grandmother who passed away on Thanksgiving. Two weeks later, I lost my dog, Phoenix. She passed away. She was 14 and a half. And uh, while I knew that it was eventually going to happen, uh, it happened suddenly and it was devastating. In the meantime, a friend of mine had reached out and said that he was selling his van, which was all built out into a camper van. And I had told him that I would keep my ears open for some folks that might be interested. And as I was driving back from my grandmother's funeral, the idea of the van started to really take shape in my mind and the options and the opportunities it would present to me, especially with my two dogs and not having to worry about hotels. And it was one of those things that just when it landed on my heart, I knew that it was right. And so I ended up pressing go on the van and picked it up the day before um, Phoenix ended up passing away. So she never had the opportunity to go traveling and adventuring with Ramsey, my other dog, and I in the van. Um, And in that midst of that season of incredible grief, um, really the van ended up presenting my exit strategy. And so just before Christmas, I loaded up the van and left Colorado. At that time, the days were very short. The daylight was short. The nights were long. The temperatures got cold. Colorado went back into a pretty um, strict lockdown with respect to COVID. The numbers were um, soaring again. And I, I fled somewhere warm to try and save myself and save my sanity. I was just so brokenhearted. And I don't know if 
you've been in a season of grief like that. I had not been in one that had that much density and that much happening all at once. Um, I was also just mourning being away from family and being by myself and so isolated at the holiday season. I think that that also magnified the emotions. And there were times when I would just fall to the floor on my knees sobbing um, and it would overwhelm me. And I am so grateful that my friend reached out and mentioned that he was selling that van because I think had that not come along, I'm not sure where my headspace would have remained. The van provided an exit strategy and I went somewhere warm and I spent the holidays in a warm place and I have been doing a lot more van exploration and it is teaching me so much. I am not someone who has done camping um, as a child growing up or in my life. I, I don't have camping experience. I am learning a lot about campsites and BLM and national park land and boondocking and stealth camping. I'm also learning a lot about how to pack very, very minimally and how few things I really need to be happy and to be satisfied out on the road. I recently just did a quick trip to Tucson where I found a lovely campground that had no cell signal. And I can't think of the last time that I've spent a 24-hour period without cell signal and what that did for my mental space and just the ability to not have the world coming at me through my cell phone and giving myself that spaciousness to sit and journal and read and literally just sit and just be out in nature, coupled with the opportunity to ride Mount Lemmon, which did not disappoint. It far exceeded my expectations and the entire adventure was just so much fun. Um, I also stayed at this adorable little campground uh, a different night. Um, it's called El Pais Motel and Campground in Tucson. It's run by a woman and her daughter. And I found that on an app uh, membership that I'm using called Harvest Hosts, which is for people like me in vans and campers to be able to stay at vineyards, breweries, um, campgrounds, llama farms, you know, you name it. And so that's really been interesting and, and super cool to check things off um, way off the beaten path. So it's been a really interesting journey. And I would say coupled with that has been the sense that the lights really turn back on in the legal profession. And when the first of the year clicked over, I feel like uh, in law, um, things went back into sort of fast forward mode, um, almost in a knee jerk reaction kind of way. And it took me a couple weeks to catch my bearings um, and to really kind of get sorted because I had slowed down to the pace that the profession had slowed to at the end of the year. And then suddenly it accelerated. And I think in my season of grief and just um, processing and downloading all the emotions, I, I was having a hard time keeping up with that knee jerk restart. So now that it's in the middle of February, I feel like I'm, I'm back on even ground and I'm really getting into this van life and having a ton of fun with it, taking my camera and taking my dog and just learning things and seeing things. And even though we're still in the thick of COVID, um, there is an opportunity to meet and talk to strangers um, wearing masks in these, in these campgrounds and in these areas. And it's just been really cool to have some of those organic conversations again and to just be out in the world, seeing things and, um, and doing things outside. I'm super grateful for all of that, and it's one of the reasons why we started this episode talking about Wild Zora, because those foods and really healthy dining that I can do in the van has become part of that reality, and finding ways to eat healthy foods that are nutritious and full of sustenance um, in the van that can be cooked with my little gas stove using hot water has become um, obviously a priority, and not just filling up on junk food and things that are packaged and full of preservatives. Um, in the midst of all of that, I had the opportunity to connect with my friend Jessica, today's guest, and um, just have been following her as she has grown her business um, from when we met back in 2015 and is now currently the president of EO Entrepreneurs Organization, this, this organization that we both belong to as business owners. And just watching what she's doing and, and um, being really, really curious about this, this business of helping people buy and sell businesses as basically a realtor would do to help someone buy and sell a home. 
And I wanted to really start picking her brain as someone who has started a business and is eventually looking long-term with what the exit strategy and, and specifically my legacy will be. What do you do when you want to not just wind down a business that you've worked so hard to create that you perhaps would like to sell or hand off to someone that you've brought into the organization so that it can keep going and keep serving people? Um, and in alignment with that this year, in terms of impact and legacy, one of the big things that we've done with my law firm is we have become a 1% for the planet partner. And I joined Trust for Public Lands board earlier this year. So our 1% for the planet contributions will be benefiting Trust for Public Land, which is an organization I highly recommend that you look into. Their whole platform is around parks and making sure that everyone is no more than a 10 minute walk away from a park. And I think we've definitely seen the need for outside spaces, green spaces, fresh air, movement, being away from concrete, jungles um, in this era of COVID and just how much that outside recreation has really saved so many of us and trying to make that accessible to everyone, regardless of what city they're in or what part of the city that they're in. So check out Trust for Public Land. Also check out 1% for the Planet. I'm really proud and excited to be part of both of those organizations and really excited to be giving this new and very intentional thought to what legacy means, um, especially in the wake of my grandmother's passing and just contemplating the incredible legacy that she left for us, her family members, as well as the communities that she lived in and the organizations that she belonged to. So that's where my head's been at the last few months, and I'm thankful to be on this side of what was a really, really difficult season around the holidays. I'm thankful that the days are getting longer, the sunlight is longer, um, we are moving towards summer, which is really hopeful and optimistic feeling, and I know with COVID it will just make um, gatherings uh, more possible when we can start doing things with other humans outdoors. So I hope you enjoy this interview. I truly think that Jess epitomizes maximum enthusiasm, as have all of our other guests. It's really great to be back recording, and I hope to not have such a lengthy pause uh, between my shows going forward. So thanks for your patience. Appreciate you coming back and giving us a listen. Make sure you check out today's show notes on our website, MaximumEnthusiasm.com, or on the Apple Podcast app because that's where you'll find the clickable link to save yourself 15% on your Wild Zora order. Take care, you guys, and have an awesome week. Let's dig in. I'm, I'm excited to get started with you. Uh, Jess Fiakovich, thank you so much for coming on to Maximum Enthusiasm today. Thanks, Megan. It's so great to be here with you and spend time with you. So Jess, do you prefer Jess or Jessica? Uh, Jess is fine. Okay. Uh, Jess and I go back to, I would say, roughly 2015. We met through this incredible organization called Entrepreneurs Organization, or EO. At the time, we both joined sort of the farm program called Accelerator, which is a sub-program designed to help us boost our businesses up into sort of the, the parent company or the parent organization, EO. And if we fast forward now six years from when we met, Jess is the current president of the Colorado chapter of EO, and that's been the case since July. So how has that been going? Oh, well, I mean, it's been great. It's um, been probably one of the biggest leadership journeys of my life. Um, leading, I knew, knew going into it, leading a group of entrepreneurs was going to be challenging as it is, right? <laughs> um, but then you enter a pandemic and unrest and just 2020 in general, and, and it's it's been a challenge and it's been a journey in, a, in the best way possible. I've probably learned more in the last, um, I think I'm nine months into my term as president there than I, I have in my entire career as a leader. Well, that's a pretty huge thing, especially given your pedigree. And we're definitely going to talk about your background in a second. But to say that that leadership position has shaped you in such a significant way, I would be really curious, like what have been maybe one of, one of the biggest surprises and one of the biggest challenges you've encountered. And we, we both sort of laughed when you said working with entrepreneurs can be challenging and I can only imagine what that means. Hmm. Um, I'd love to hear a couple examples of how this has really maybe stretched you more than you expected. 
Well, I think the biggest challenge has been there's so much input coming at you, uh. right? So, <laughs> yeah. So, well, well, and if you think about it, okay, let's just look, let's just use the pandemic. Let's just isolate that one issue we've had over the last 12 months. And, um, you know, we're both in Colorado and every city and county and state has different restrictions every day. So as a leader, you have those inputs of like, this is what you can and can't do, but it differs be- between whether you're in Denver or Boulder or in the mountains. Um, and then within there, there's like even guidelines above and beyond that. So then there's the CDC guidelines. And then if you remove just like the actual physical restraints around leadership and running an organization in the last year, in a membership organization, we all have voices, right? So we've got about 140 (laughs) members that have voices and have opinions on how they're running their business and how we should be leading the organization. And, and by and large, all of them have been very, very supportive, but having to balance all of those voices, all of those restrictions, and then making the right decision for a membership-based organization, which means making the right decision for the members, both in the current term and in the future, um, that's just been the hardest part. It's like, how how do I balance that? And, and honestly, I don't have an answer. It, it changes situationally. It changes day to day. Um, how I've really approached it is to listen to all sides and all inputs and kind of systematically been asking for feedback from the membership. Like, are you comfortable in person if we're following social distancing guidelines? Yes or no. And then figuring out where does the membership lie and how can we pull off something? Because most of our stuff is typically in-person events and get-togethers. Right. How can we pull off something that will benefit the members, provide them value, but also keeps them safe and secure. No small feat. That is not a small undertaking, my friend. And we both laughed when you mentioned input because by and large, a group of entrepreneurs is not exactly known for being silent and keeping their opinions to themselves. (laughs) So I can only imagine the level of input that's come at you and you've been so diplomatic and so professional in your handling of it. And I've benefited as a member of this organization that you are running and it's um it's been really cool to see you at the top running such a dynamic and um an ever-changing you know organization with lots of very opinionated members <laughs> well, thank <laughs> you thank you they've all I mean almost everyone has been su- actually I have to say everyone has been very supportive throughout the year um but even just trying to help sometimes is overwhelming sure. right Sure. I imagine you've seen some entrepreneurs at the end of their rope, like losing their minds as they're watching their businesses collapse. And I would imagine you've been leaned on more heavily in that role than probably presidents before you. Do you feel that that's true? Yeah, I definitely feel that's true. I mean, um, especially for, for people that I've already had a relationship with. And even those who don't, I'm usually the, the first phone call of um, someone needs financial assistance or something's going on in their business. And I think it's exasperated because, and we'll get into what I do, but I serve small business owners for a living too, right? So um, it, I'm doing that in my role day to day and then doing it with EO as well. Um, it's it's a role I, I like to be in and a position I like to be in, but it's also very hard when you see so many people and businesses that you care about um, struggling yeah. and going through rough times. Well, that prompts a question I want to ask, and then we are going to get into the six or seven different hats that you wear. But really on that note, how does Jess take care of herself? What are your big, big things, your like your non-negotiables that you do to prevent yourself from hitting the burnout phase when you are running multiple companies and a large organization, um, like a very, very demanding lifestyle? Yeah, it's a great question. And it's funny because like, I know exactly what I'm supposed to do every day to take care of myself. Like I know I have the formula, like I've listened to Tim Ferriss's podcast and try all the different morning routines. I know what my routine needs to be, but whether or not I do it is like a daily battle. I'm pretty good most days. But so uh, for me, it's a, it's a morning routine, um, which includes some meditation and visualization, um, exercise, moving my body every morning. Um, and then I, the weird part of what I do is, um, for some reason, like um, hot and cold in terms of temperature are really, um, really great treatments in terms of my body and stress and physical pain. So I do 15 minutes in the sauna 
um, after my workout. And then I do a cold plunge into about 55 degrees of water for 10 to 60 seconds, depending on how cold it is outside. Um, but that really has helped me. I've struggled with physical pain because of stress in my oh. past. And that's really been the, the two things that have kept me injury free. Um, and, and like, you know, that, that just like constant stress pain, um, from keeping and creeping up. And I wasn't aware that this was something in your background. So you've actually had physical manifestation from stress. So you're probably more acutely aware of the need to manage it than the average bear. Um, and so with that in mind, like what advice would you give people? And, and you alluded to this earlier, you know what you need to do. And we all kind of fight that battle of knowing what we need to do and then actually doing it you know, what is your sort of hard stop where you will make it happen no matter what, because you know that you need it? Yeah, it's, it's very interesting. So, you know, kind of how I came to this is I, like I said, I tested a lot of different stuff and journaled about it to figure out what was keeping me um, mentally sane. So I also um, struggle with anxiety that can turn into depression. And that is highly related to my physical pain and my stress. Um, so when I'm, what is, was testing things is I could just rate my anxiety on a daily basis. And uh, over time I could see that certain activities would reduce my stress, which reduced my anxiety, allowed me to sleep. Like, and it's just like this whole cycle, right? It's a whole circle. Um, but, but the hardest part is, um, doing it right. Like today we were just talking, I had zoom calls from 9am today up until this point. And, you know, to get myself out of bed at five in the morning to do this morning routine is not always helpful, um, or easy. So really my husband plays a big role in the accountability uh. and he at this point can probably, no, not probably. He definitely sees my change in mood faster than I do. So if I go off track and, and don't do my morning routine, it's usually about if I miss like three or more days in a row is usually where my mood will shift. Um, so he's been a huge accountability partner for me and be like, Hey, um, by the way, you need to like get on the bike, <laughs> like, or go for a ride. Oh, you know? that. Which raises another really interesting point that I want to talk about. I mean, you live such a fascinating multifaceted life and you are in business with your husband. And for those of us with, you know, relationship aspirational goals, whether or not we're in business with our partner, how did you two come to a place where he can he can say those things to you like, Hey girl, you need to go for a run. And he's saying that with your best interests in mind. But I imagine if you're in a cranky mood and someone says something like that, it may not always be well received. So how did you, <laughs> you get to a place where that can actually be conveyed in a way that you'll say, Oh yeah, you're right. I do need to go run. Yeah, you're right. And sometimes like he <laughs> says it in like, so to answer your question, it's all about like tonality. Um, ah. so like when you, I think you can tell somebody uh, the same sentence and it can have different meetings, um, to, based on your tone and how you're delivering it too, with facial expressions, like messages like that are much better delivered face to face. Cause most humans, um, actually process more visual communication than they do auditory or kinesthetic. Um, so, you know, if he says to me, Hey babe, I think, you know, I think you're getting a little stressed out and you really could use a workout. Like I'm just seeing a change in your behavior that's much different than like, you need to go for a run right now <laughs> by text message or something like that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah. So, and, and it's a game we play and it's, I mean, he's actually very sensitive to how I deliver messages in terms of tone and like how I'm physically de delivering the message, whether it's oh. in person or a text. And it's a game we play. We still screw up and sometimes say things like we're both type A. So sometimes I try and get to the point like really quick and it's not delivered in the best method possible. <laughs> ah. But um we've both done a lot of work around communication tools and how you communicate um with people. Um mainly for sales, but it's helped a lot in our relationship too and I think that's helped him deliver that message to me or vice versa when it needs to be said. That's pretty rad. And I think it definitely has contributed to your strength strengths in business at least from the outside looking in and I'm sure it's not all rainbows and, and sunshine all the time since you do spend so much time together in business and in your personal life, but you've both really figured out a way to maximize your strengths. And then combined, you are one heck of a powerful duo. It's really cool to, to watch and observe. Um, Thank you. I'm curious. So you and I spoke a couple of days ago about something related to my business. And you'd mentioned that you guys had 
or that you had sold a wine business over a decade ago, and this was part of your past I wasn't aware of. And so um, take us back. And, and was that something that you were running with your husband, Al, or was that your endeavor alone? Yeah, Al and I started, it was uh, it was called Decanid. It actually survived, I think, seven years after we sold it. And then it, they re- it recently closed. But it was um, it started out as a wine retail shop in Naples, Florida. We also did some like wine tastings and things like that. And we grew it into dealing in um, high-end wines and collector edition wines across the U.S. into Canada and Hong Kong. Um, but we started it in 2009, after Al and I had actually both worked for the same corporate company um, in 2008 and 2009, and we got laid off. Um, we were in commercial real estate development. So we got laid off through that whole recession. Um, we were also like, our company was funded by Lehman Brothers. So it wasn't a great uh, time to be in that, sure. in that industry. And um, we were living in Aspen at the time and had just gone through two like epic, but really cold and snowy winters. And my in-laws were like, Hey, we've got this house in Florida. If you guys want to just move down here and figure it out. And I was like, yep, that sounds great. We'll do that. Um, so we moved down there and, and we were into wine at the time and thought it would be fun to be in the wine industry. And, um, so we, we got into it kind of like unknown, um, and just were doing it as a fun passion project as kind of our next stepping stone. Um, but we ran that business for just under three years before we sold it. And before we go into the next event in the timeline, I want to capture something you just said, which really distills the essence of the show and is one of the main reasons I wanted to have you on as a guest, which you said we got into it really as an unknown or, you know, you just alluded to the fact that you guys didn't really know much about the wine business. You were coming from commercial real estate. This seemed like something that was fun and interesting to you, but you jumped into what sounds like the deep end of a very, you know, intricate and, um, and difficult market from what I understand to break into because so much of it does come down to like relationships and things. Where does that fearlessness come from that, that you have and that you and he seem to share and what advice would you give people, especially in this particular time when so many people are in a space of needing or having to pivot? Like, where do you get that willingness and ability to say, I'm just going to go do this new scary thing and figure it out? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Well, and to be, to be honest, it's not like, I don't feel like that every minute of every day. Like I probably live in more fear of something not working out or fear of risk on like a minute to minute basis. It's probably spent more time there than I do of like, hell yes, I can take on the wine industry at 24 years old and, you know, a young woman. Um, I probably live more in fear and that's, that's something I'm working on is I want to spend more time in, in confidence and risk, but it's a, it's a balance. Um, but I, I mean, like, look, we can go back to, I, I have fantastic parents and they taught me that I could believe, like I could do whatever I believed and was willing to work hard for, right? We could go back to that. Um, we could go back to my New Jersey roots, which I think everyone from New Jersey is built with like just a little chip on their shoulder, right? <laughs> Thinking that they can do it better, um, myself included. Um, but but it's been a process and it's it's been something that I've I know that I want to be successful in my life and I I have always pictured myself in a successful role whatever what that looks like for me right but I know in order to get there I have to push my comfort limits and I have to try some things that are going to scare you know me and 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 I probably will fail at so I have to take those risks when they're presented to me um and and I think that's what we've done well is like we've, we've figured out how to evaluate the risks or evaluate what we're going to jump into where we're confident enough that we can make an impact that even if we fail, the downside's pretty low. Mm. And it sounds to me like you measure your, like your success metrics aren't always purely bottom line. You just use the word impact. So even Mm -hmm. if you fail, but in the meantime, if you have impacted people, whether they be customers or employees, it's really not a failure per se in every sense of the word. Um, even if perhaps the bottom line doesn't pan out the way you'd hoped. Um, yeah. which I think is, that's a really important point. And I love that you guys have sort of your, your balance of the factors that you're willing to evaluate. And does, does Al share your risk tolerance? Are you two pretty similar on that spectrum? 
Yeah, he's probably, uh, no, he's way more confident than I am. And he spends okay. way less time in that fear spot. But when, I mean, when it does show up for him and it, it does like on a daily and weekly basis, it's like some really, I mean, I mean, I think we all struggle with this, some like really deep seed fears, right? Like we're all, I'll go, well, you know, we're launch, say we're launching a new marketing campaign. I'll be like, oh, well, it might not work. And then we'll lose some money. Like Al takes it very personally right oh. so um so so he does have way more confidence and and way more risk tolerance than i have on a day-to-day basis but his his doubts can be way lower than my doubts are ah and that sounds probably where you two really balance each other out in in very complementary ways um yeah and it sounds like the reality is that you launched yourselves into this wine business relatively unknown and you made it a success. So you put yourselves in a position to actually successfully exit and sell that company. I think you said three years after you founded it. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. It was just three years. And it's actually interesting because now sitting where we are in 2021, looking back at it. So we founded it in June of 2009. It was the depths of the recession. Um, it was also, we, we founded it in Naples and like, I think it was Five, no, four months later, we had that B, big BP oil spill that shut oh, down right. all the um, tourist communities in, on the West Coast of Florida <laughs> and Alabama and some of the other states too. And it was like the ultimate fear time, which I kind of like now looking back at it, I kind I loved it because there was so much opportunity. And you mentioned, you know, wine, the wine industry is very heavy in relationships. It's about who you know. But in that time, everybody was acting so irrationally or like their businesses had taken oh. a tank that they couldn't buy from their distributors or buy from the wineries they had relationships with. And there was a lot of opportunity for new players. Um, uh-huh. So that's how we, we were able to grow so quickly is because we jumped in at the ultimate worst time to start a luxury high-end wine business. Oh, how interesting. I mean, and of course, a lot of that we have with hindsight now looking back too, but at the time, I'm sure you were at times saying to yourselves, what have we done? Like, could we have made this any harder on ourselves? And yet, as you mentioned, the opportunity then, the opportunities were replete. And so what prompted the decision to sell it as opposed to keep running it? Like, where does the Fiakovich desire to sort of onto the next thing come from? Yeah, we were skiing back in Aspen again. and. um and I was never a Florida girl. Like I, I thought, gotcha. you know, I think if anybody moves to the beach, they probably have this thought, but I was like, we're going to move to Florida. I'm going to go to the beach every day and it's just going to be so wonderful. And that's not how it works, right? right. <laughs> you still work and you, you don't get to go, but I, I miss the Colorado lifestyle. I missed hiking. I miss the mountains. Um, and I also miss being in the, the B2B more, uh, world more, um, you know, gotcha. retail is just not my game. Um, it was fun, but it, it was never like long-term what I wanted to do. We are also saw like kind of evaluating our market space was the, the wine industry was coming back. Luxury wine was coming back. And also it was like the beginning of, um, all the online wine sales ha- happening. So uh. like wine library was taking off Gary V's project and all the other fine wine retailers were going online and it started to become a margin game. Right. So it it wasn't, we couldn't really, you know, a bottle of, you know, uh, Stag's Leap Cabernet is, you know, there's not much differentiation you can make with that online or with collectors, except what price you can deliver it at. So we also saw like kind of from a business standpoint that this would be the time to get out um, and, you know, cash in on what we had built and move on to the next thing. Which I appreciate some of the factors that you raised there too, because I think sometimes people stay in something too long or they don't listen to some of those other parts of their gut that are saying this isn't the right literal location for you this isn't the right venture for you anymore um and so on that note what advice would you give people who are maybe in something and they're feeling that pull that it's time to move on to the next thing but it's just so hard to leave what you know and the safety of that yeah i mean it's it's very hard i think my advice would be like there's really no harm in testing. Like, I mean, it's just like a house, right? So like, if you decide that you want to put your house on the market and move, like you don't have to sell until you accept the offer. 
right? And it's the same thing with a business. It's like whether you decide to sell it or shut it down, like you, there's things you can do to dip your toe in the water, right? You could list it on the market and see what the reaction is. You could shut it down for three days a week and give yourself some time to do a different project you're more passionate about and just see, you know, whether or not that's exactly what you want. I mean, what we did is we listed the business for sale and then we left and we went to California for a week and then came to Denver for a week because we were debating on moving to one or the other. And I knew we'd made the right decision because when I got on the plane to go from Denver to Naples, I was dreading going home. And I knew that was, it was the right decision to, you know, cut ties and move on. And it's also, as you said, possible to start the next thing before you exit the current thing too. And I'm sure that that's advice that you frequently give people is you don't have to, you know, it doesn't have to be drastic in like an overnight transition. There can be some overlap and... Um, and do you see that quite frequently with the folks that you deal with who are selling businesses? Yeah, we see that a lot. I mean, I think it's it it's almost in every case where whether it's another business somebody started or a nonprofit or getting more involved in their grandkids' lives, they've carved time out in their schedule away from their business to do whatever what is next for them. Gotcha. Which yeah, can ease some of those fears just during that transition time. Um, and I jumped ahead there a little bit, but we'll just go to present day and then we'll kind of backtrack for what, what happened between. Um, but presently, you own a company called um, Exit Strategy where you assist companies in, or Exit fa- Factor, sorry, yep. Exit mm-hmm. Factor you founded. And um, it's really in the the business of selling companies. I mean, buying companies, yes, but really helping companies figure out how to sell their endeavor, right? Yeah. Yeah. So we, we own, um, two companies and, and the, the, um, primary one is Transworld Business Advisors, which does the actual brokering of transactions. So if somebody wants to sell their company, we'll represent it and find them the buyer. And that spurred our other company, um, Exit Factor, which is my prime focus now, which is teaching business owners how to get ready, uh, for a buy or sell transaction because we really see, so many little things just get missed in the prep for sale process that really impacts what an owner can sell for in terms of dollars and also like how complicated the process becomes for them. So for those who didn't even know that this was an industry that existed, which was definitely my headspace back when I first met you in 2015, I was like, wow, this is essentially a realtor who doesn't buy and sell homes, they buy and sell businesses. And so that's really what you do for your clients, right? Yeah, exactly. It's the perfect analogy is, yeah. And we focus in small to mid-sized businesses. So our clients usually have somewhere between zero and 30 million in revenue. So we're not talking about big multi-billion dollar transactions that Facebook's buying. We're talking about like main street businesses um, that have been founded by families, partners, friends, those types of businesses. I like my head kind of explodes when I think about what you've probably seen among businesses, um, just ways to go about it, ways that they definitely did not set themselves up for a successful sale or exit. Um, many of us as solos, we do all the wrong things where we make the business about us. And then it's very, very hard to make it attractive to sell ultimately. And I'm sure you've seen sadly, too many very viable companies that could have been sold, but were just structured in a way that it made it really only possible to eventually wind down. Um, So, I mean, there's probably a whole evaluative process that you guys go through. And I know you just launched a bunch of online content and remind me the name of the class that you're teaching business owners, this stuff. Uh, Prep to sell. Prep to sell. Two day course. Is that right? So we have an intro course that's two days, and then it's actually, um, if, if you want to, you can opt into a year-long program um, where you're doing um, weekly lessons, and then you have a group accountability um, through uh, with a, a small group of like two to seven business owners that you're meeting with once a month. So as a business owner, is is there any time that it would be too soon to be thinking about your eventual departure? I mean, if someone has just founded a company, is it already time for them to be joining these classes? I mean, look, there's some things you don't want to do, right? Like 
too soon, right? There's some things we recommend in prep to sell and, and some of it could be related to like tax strategy and things like that. Um, but you know, you don't have to do those items, but I don't think it's ever too soon to think about your exit strategy. Um, one of the reasons we started prep to sell is because most business owners don't sell for a financial reason, right? So we've done in the last seven years, we've done, I think over 350 transactions now, and I can probably count on one hand how many business older owners sold because it was going to be a good financial transaction for them. Oh, most wow. of, yeah. Most of the triggers for sale are like, my wife is getting relocated. Um, I've lost passion in my business. My manager quit and I've got to step back in or on the, the bad side, like health reasons, right? The owner's sick, the owner's wife becomes sick. Um, and, and it's those personal reasons that trigger a sale. So as much as we would like to think we can plan when our sale is going to be of our business, we really don't have control of that because our life is going to impact that decision more so sure. than what's going on in the business. And for those that have never been through this process on either the buyer or the sell side of things, you know, are there actual business listings, sort of how we can go online and look for homes for sale in the area? Is that a thing where there's a publishing somewhere of businesses for sale? Yeah. Yeah. And it's, uh, it's actually really fun to look through, but there's a bunch of different um, publishing websites. Um, the biggest one is biz by sell. Um, you can also go on our website, tworld.com and search our inventory nationally, but it's the same thing as Zillow. Like you can set up okay. your buyer preferences and get kicked emails of businesses, um, that are newly listed for sale that match your preferences and things like that. Very interesting. Okay. So we kind of skipped over a little bit. So I want to backtrack slightly. So you went yeah. from the decanted sold it successfully, relocated to Denver. And then um, pretty soon thereafter, you and Al started working in the trans world um, business, correct? Yes. Yeah. So we, we sold our business through a business broker too. Um, it was one of our top competitors now, so we won't name them. Um, but yeah, we, we had a good financial transaction. Like I look back now and I'm like, we actually got a really good deal for a company and, and I'm very grateful for that. But the process was a mess. Um, oh. it, it really like, we weren't prepared for it. Um, it, the whole process felt very veiled and like, we didn't know what was going on. Um, and our, our broker kind of left mid transaction for us to figure everything else out for ourselves during due diligence. And, um, I was felt you know, that we were treated like, oh, well, we're just small potatoes. And, uh, you know, we, I mean, we did not have a giant exit, um, but we did not have an insignificant one. We'd build our company up to about, you know, four to 5 million in revenue. And that was when something went off in my head. It's like, I wonder if this is happening to other people. And I started investigating the business brokerage industry and finding that, you know, the, the biggest market that was underserved is small business owners that are doing like less than 10 million in revenue, but that's most of our businesses in the U S and, um, I knew there had to be a better way to do it. I became really interested in the industry. Um, and it felt like it was good to bring my entrepreneurial background to it and then bringing my like commercial real estate back in from corporate of what I learned there. Um, so we ended up buying a, um, trans world location, trans world's a franchise, we ended up buying one location in Denver um, in 2013, early 2013, and have grown to multi-offices from there. And that is the company that you and Al really were co-founding and co-running for a, a fairly significant amount of time, right? Correct, yes. And then you um, really now have moved into, as you said, kind of your prime focus is this um, exit factor where you are like hyper-focused now on helping business owners with their sale. Yep. You're getting That's the sale so cool. process ready. So yeah, it's more on the education side and the prepping side um, where Al and, and our team at Transworld still do a fantastic job actually selling the deals and brokering the deals when people are ready to list for sale. I, I am curious in the era of COVID, have you seen an increase of people sort of desperately trying to sell businesses before things hit rock bottom in certain industries that were getting really badly hit? Or have you seen an influx of people trying to buy businesses who've been laid off by larger employers? Yeah. I mean, for the sellers, it's been interesting. Um, a lot of the programs that were put out through the stimulus, specifically like PPP and the EIDL loans, really did a lot to help sustain those businesses that were hitting rock bottom. 
And we saw it mostly in, in the restaurant and hospitality side where they sure. had the biggest impact in, in terms of neg- a, a, a decrease in revenue. Um, so we've seen a lot of those people actually have been able to hold off from selling. And that's, I mean, that's been our, our advice to them is like, if your business is really down, if you're very impacted negatively by COVID, if you don't have to sell now, don't sell. Because there's almost two markets going on is, is there's what we call the distressed market. And those, there's are those businesses and there's buyers out there. I mean, we've been selling restaurants this whole time, um, oh. but they're opportunistic and they're not going to pay even close to full asking no. price, right? Right. <laughs> so, um, but on the other side, some of the benefits that people haven't been talking about with the stimulus plans is there's incentives to buy a business. Um, so right now, if you take out a new SBA loan, which is um, SBA loans are used for a lot of different purposes, but one is to acquire a business. If you take out an SBA loan, um, the government will pay your first six months of payments and they'll reduce or waive your fees. Um, Wow. Yeah. So I was looking this morning and um, our buyer inquiries are up about 30% year over year. Um, and oh, we just wow. can't keep up with all the people interested in buying a business because of the incentives. Um, so that's the other side of the market. They're chasing the businesses that were able to survive through the pandemic, survive through some business closures. And, um, you know, it's very hard to keep our inventory in terms of listings on the shelves because of the, all of the buyer interest right now. Wow. So good time if you are a business owner interested in selling for the reason, the, the correct, if you will, reasons that you hinted earlier, just that it's a good financial decision to make. Um, one of the big things you and I talked about are, or, well, let me just ask it this way. What is one of, or a couple of the biggest mistakes that you would say that business owners make in really making their business not sellable, where they've made it very difficult to make it even a desirable asset purchase? Yeah, it's a great question. I think the hardest part is when we make our businesses about ourselves, right? So if you think about it, when you go to sell your business, you're handing your role to a new owner. Um, And if the business is tied to you in terms of like revenue production or the clients want to work with you, um, it's a lot harder to transition that personal relationship than it would be if you're just acting as like the CEO hat where you're managing a team who is then managing the client relationships. Um, so that's, that's one of the biggest mistakes. Um, the second biggest mistake we talk a lot about is financials. So mm. I know <laughs> to most business owners, not those in EO, right? Cause we've been through all these cash days and, and right. stuff like that. But, um, to most business owners, financials is a dirty word. And, um, oh. when you're going to sell your business, it's not just you know, your broker that's coming through your financials or a buyer, but also like banks that are going to be lending money to the buyers to buy a business. So it's, it's really important to have clean books and records, meaning like there's consistency from year to year. Um, you know, you have reviewed financials by your CPA, you're filing your taxes on time, and you're not running too many personal expenses through your business. Um, sure. So those are probably the two biggest mistakes I see um, leading up to a sale. Any really cool stories that you're able to share even generally where you just thought that um, just something was exceptional, either from the buyer's perspective where someone just pursued a dream that they'd always had and executed in buying a business and you just watched them completely light up and come to life or anyone with a really successful exit where you just saw that they had built a business they were proud of and then they sold and it was just like, top of the world kind of feeling? Yeah. I mean, there's so many. Um, I think the, the, the stories that really appeal to me are, are the, like, you know, the, the true, like, um, I, I, I won't say like, you know, fairy tale or storybook stories, but some of those, but also like the, the sellers that are super humble. So like we had, um, a gentleman, he emigrated from the Czech Republic, um, over here in the eighties. And he started a construction company that he built from scratch. And he was able to uh, build it up and sell it for, I think, just over a million dollars in exit. And so when we were talking to him at the end of the transaction, we're like, you know, what are you going to do? And most people are like, oh, I'm going to take a trip to Europe and I'm going to go do this and, you know, go buy my ski house. And he's like, well, 
I'm actually going to move back to the Czech Republic and I'm going to, you know, use this money to take care of my family. So like my mother and my, my his mom and and dad were still alive, I think in their nineties. And, um, and he was going to take care of his, you know, sisters and brothers and nieces and nephews and a whole plan. And, and it it was all about them, right? He was like, I came here to build this company to be able to go back and give my family a different lifestyle. Um, so stories like that, that like, I really remember and appeal to me. Um, we also had yeah. a, a husband and wife, um, and we loved them too, cause they were a husband and wife team, but they'd been working together for almost 40 years, um, built uh, in a company that did, um, bricklaying and another construction trade. And they, they really just wanted to hand off the company and maintain the legacy of the company and make sure their employees were taken care of. But it was the same thing. It was like, well, what are you going to do when, when you sell? They're like, well, I'm going to take my grandchildren to Red Lobster. Right. And that's how we're going to celebrate the multi-million dollar transaction. And, um, and it's just, it's those stories that I think are more heartwarming where you just see people that they've built something throughout their lives and they really they're so humble about the exit and so humble about what they're going to do next. It's usually family focused that um, just makes me really love what we do. Absolutely. And I'm curious, as you say that, have you noticed any trends in, let's just call it life satisfaction or fulfillment, but you know, obviously those two examples you gave had such a clear why behind the business. And it really had a lot to do with, as you said, the family motives have you noticed a difference in general in the business owner and maybe even just an EO and just in life in general between those who are in it for sort of just the money or the fame or the glory or to get this thing as big as I can possibly get it versus those that are driven by sort of a deeper sense of why? Yeah. I mean, there's definitely a difference. There's actually like a generational difference right now. So there's a Uh, lot of um, baby boomers that are exiting. And um, right now, baby boomers own over 50% of all small businesses in America. So they're the biggest demographic of people selling their businesses. And um, I think just because they're older, they have more life experience and, and they're more oriented to a slower lifestyle after they sell they're really most interested in um, legacy. They want to make sure their employees are taken care of, but they're also like their prime motivation for selling is, is to get back to their family. Um, they've spent enough time at work and they really want to get back to their family. And then if you look at Gen X and even the millennial generation who's starting to exit businesses as well, those are more financially motivated, but it makes sense because those, those generations are still earlier in their careers, right? Sure. So- and we see a lot, and, and this is myself included too, like, you know, my parents are baby boomers. My mom worked in the same job for almost 40 years. And, you know, I've not been in my career that long and I've probably had, had I don't even know how many different jobs and careers, right? So you see sure. millennials and Gen Xers testing the waters in different industries with different businesses. And I think that's going to continue. I think we said that the average baby boomer will own 1.5 businesses in their lifetime. And we're projecting that the average millennial will own eight. Wow. Um, Yeah. So we're seeing like that motivation is not like, it's not just like financial, but it's like, let's just do something new. Like what's the next adventure, right? Gotcha. They're treating business as a whole different game completely. Mm -hmm a yep. whole different approach to work um, where they are chasing perhaps a bit of more of that adventure and thrill seeking and maybe some of that personal fulfillment. Whereas the generation before the baby boomers, it was like, I'm, I'm trying to put food on the table and support the family. And, um, and so they stayed in it longer, I suppose that would be a, a big generalization, but uh, yeah. what is sort of the trend then that's being predicted with these baby bloomers leaving businesses who have been in them very consistently for long periods of time and pretty, what I would say, traditional industries. And then we see these millennials now owning eight or more businesses, and I'm sure Gen X even more so, you know, where do we see that going then with what would maybe be considered a lack of consistency or just lots of sort of jumping around? Um. You know, I think our, our society is starting to move so fast too, that the jumping around's like actually okay. And we've seen um, a lot of buyers that have really successfully narrowed in on, you know, it's not necessarily the industry that I'm good at, but like maybe I'm really good at online marketing, right? Uh, and how do I apply those skills to a new industry to be successful? 
And um, a, a lot of those skill sets the millennials and Gen Xers have are actually perfect to align with acquiring a baby boomer owned business, baby boomer owned business, because they tend to like, you know, lack in certain areas where millennials thrive. Got um, it. So I, I think there's a lot of lessons we can learn between industries and, and jump around easier than you, you could have, say, 30 years ago when technology didn't drive so much of the business community. Sure. And it was almost discouraged to seem like you were jumping around, whereas right. now it, it's a different ballgame completely. Um, and so back to you then, in the place where you're at in your career, and when we talk about these different facets or these different skills that kind of light us up, you know, what parts of your day right now are really lighting you up? Well, today talking to you. Oh, <laughs> ditto, friend. Yeah. Um, no, I, I really do like talking to entrepreneurs about the business buying and selling process. And it was because it's really because I felt like it was a secret to me. Um, okay. So like I went to business school, um, my, my grandfather owned businesses, my in-laws owned businesses and everybody would talk to me and you could take courses and programs and everything about, you know, starting a business, growing a business, but nobody told you about like, this is how you actually exit a business. This is actually how you sell or even like an option. Like, Hey, you don't have to start your own business. You can just go already buy something that's right. more successful and right. avoid all that startup party. Right. Um, <laughs> so, you know, part of it is like, I wish I would have known this when I was getting into entrepreneurship. And that's, that's why. So I like to talk about it a lot. I like to teach a lot. Um, you know, we have, I have my own podcast with my mentor, Andy Cagnetta. So, um, a lot of like what lights me up is, is just delivering those messages and saying like, Hey, this is how you do it. It's not some hidden secret or Pandora's box. It's actually pretty simple once you understand the game. So the demystifying it and making it more accessible for people is really what I hear you saying you enjoy. Yeah, definitely. I like that. And I mean, as a personal chair, I feel like lawyers do the exact opposite, where as a profession, they try to use big words and make sure that people who aren't lawyers feel on the outside instead of in the know or feel empowered with knowledge. So I'm with you on that, being able to empower other people so that they can be on an equal playing field. So I really love that that's what's lighting you up right now. And I did want to mention your podcast. It's called The Deal Board or The Deal Board Podcast. Com. Um, tell me yep. a little bit about your mentor and co-host, Andy. Yeah. So Andy is um, the current owner of Transworld, the global brand. So he owns the franchise. Ah. He's actually, I think, the fourth or fifth owner. Um, Transworld's been in business for now 42 years, um, and he bought it um, from the previous owners and was able to franchise it and grow it. So we decided... Um, just over two years ago, actually, I started a podcast to basically pull back the curtain of like, this is what the behind the scenes is like in the deal world. And this is what happens when um, we're dealing with clients and buyers and how deals go bad and how they go great. And so we've been putting out um, podcasts now every other week um, on, a Wednesday, cool. on Wednesdays. Yeah. So in your own life and kind of as you look ahead, so you'll, you'll get to um, set your EO president uh, position down in, in the summer. And it has been a huge year for you to have been handed that in the middle of a pandemic, like understatement of the year to say that that <laughs> is like shocking and huge and overwhelming, I'm sure. Um, but what is kind of on your radar ahead? Like what's got you really lit up as far as something new or exciting that's coming in your future? Well, I'm 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 so passionate about our prep to sell program that we've talked about. So I'm really um, focused on just growing that and trying to deliver that message to more business owners. I do have a book coming out this summer. Awesome. Um, hopefully, fingers crossed. So I'm going to be focused on finishing that in the launch. Um, I also would love to take a vacation. <laughs> like, uh, yes. So um, yeah, I mean, I, I actually you know, next year there's some focus around prep to sell and some, the book and some more, um, content getting pushed out there. But also, um, I think I'm coming up on a year that I'm going to take a, a little bit of a pause, yeah. um, and give myself a little bit of a break and not be so much work in the next year. Cause the last 18 months have, have literally, literally been, so. I can't even imagine. I can't even imagine. Yeah. Um, does the title of the book exist? Is it something you're able to talk about or share yet? Um, it exists, but it's still getting played with, so okay, I can't okay. share it now, but okay, no I will, 
Is yeah. it on these topics? Is it in this realm yes. of, of topic areas? Okay. Yeah. It's a companion to the prep to sell program. So it'll be all about getting your business ready for sale so you can increase the value and the likelihood that it will sell. So my final question um, has to do with this view personally. And I, since I've known you, I've always known you were a huge Bruce Springsteen addict and fan. And I think you've been to what, like 15 or 20 concerts. Maybe that's an understatement. Um, I, I'm over 50. I know that. Oh, but that's okay. <laughs> oh yeah. I way missed the mark. Okay. Where does that come from? Like what started that? What's that all about? Um, I mean, so I'm from Jersey. Um, so there's, there's like, that that. yeah, but, um, and, and like, so I was raised on classic rock. My parents have great taste in music. And, um, so I, I've listened to Bruce all my life, but it was really where I saw him perform live for the first time, um, that it changed. And it, it's just like so incredible. And this is my favorite topic. I could talk about this for like hours. Um, oh, awesome. it's so incredible to walk into a room and I get this sometimes with business owners, but you walk into a room and not just a room, like a, a giant theater with 40,000 other people that are just so happy and grateful to be not just alive, but like in, alive during the same time as Bruce and able to attend these shows. And he's absolutely the best live performer I've ever seen. Wow. Um, so between the live performance that usually like lasts like almost four hours, and if people don't know, most of the concerts you go to last between like an hour and a half and two. So like four hour shows, these people that are so passionate, um, and he's just an inspiring leader. And, um, so like, as I, as I spent more time going to shows and and learning about him, he actually became a big inspiration and and motivation for me as a leader for how he runs his band, um, but also his community of fans. Wow. That's way more, there was way more to that answer than I anticipated. So I'm glad we talked about that. And it kind of brings me to, I suppose, my next question or uh, maybe final question, which I know I said that was the last question, but uh, if you were going to put together sort of a personal board of directors, it sounds like Bruce would be on it. He'd be someone you would consult. Oh, totally. I mean, he'd be, I mean, if, if he would be on my board, yes, I would definitely have him. Um, I have two mentors that are, have been integral to my success. Andy, who we mentioned already, um, and Ray Titus, um, who owns United Franchise Group. They've both been really helpful. Um, and then a good friend and other mentor of mine, Heidi Ganahl, she founded Camp Bow Wow. Those three would definitely be on the board. Um, and then I, I, if I could pull anybody in yeah. my, and like yeah, all anyway. time, I'd also like, I'd love to have Albert Einstein on my, on my board. For sure. Um, yeah, me and Albert are birthday buddies. So we were born oh, the same okay. day, just a few years apart. Um, <laughs> but I also, I just uh, really respect his mind and and some of, um, you know, the space he gave himself to develop his genius. So um, I would pull him back from the dead if he would serve on the board as well. Sounds like a solid board. And on the topic of mentors, do you have any closing advice for people who maybe are missing that component in their life? Like, how do you go about finding a mentor and curating that relationship? Um, I think first you have to really know what you're looking for. Um, like two of my mentors are very focused in, in my industry and helping me build my business because they've been where I sit before. Um, and then my third is more of like a, a life mentor. Um, and so I think you need to know what you need out of that relationship. Mm. And then you also need to place yourself in a community that can bring you that person, not like knowing who it's going to be, but like bring you that person and, and that person with those skill sets. And then I've been a big proponent is like, you have to give first. Like, I, I don't like these things where like, you know, you walk up to somebody and you're like, will you be my mentor? Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but give first and, and, and give value to that person and, and treat it like you would any other relationship um, of the give and receive. And I think then it organically develops and it's not this like, weird thing where you're like almost hunting for like a a job, right? Yeah. Or one directional beneficiary. Yeah. Yeah. Um, any book that you'd recommend to folks right now, anything you're reading that you love or have recently read? Oh, I don't know if you were on this uh, webinar that we hosted last week, but, um, the best book I've read recently was by Tiffany Schleen and it's called 24 six. It's about, tech Shabbats or shutting off all technology for 24 hours in your life. Um, and I've done it for two weeks in a row now and man, it is like, 
it takes me back to like the 90s when I didn't have to worry about like my phone going off. And it's Ooh. probably the best thing I've done in 15 years. And so the book is called 24-6. Yep. By Tiffany okay. Schlein. Yep. Okay. I will definitely check that out. I just recently went camping and found myself in a campsite with no cell signal. And to your point, it was incredible. I was like, wow, I didn't know this still existed. And I can't wait to come back and spend a week here because you do feel in this very protective bubble where suddenly your time and energy aren't taken from you without your say so. <laughs> I know. It's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> back in the day of flip phones or just phones with cords that were plugged into walls. Yeah. Well, Jess, thank you so much for your time. We will have links to all of your um, websites, businesses, and um, podcasts and things that we've talked about. Thank you so much for sharing your enthusiasm for life and business with everyone. And I can't wait to hear more about this book that's coming out and hopefully take part in your prep to sell program here soon. All right. Thanks, Megan. Thanks for having me on the show. Absolutely. Have a good night. Thank you for listening to Maximum Enthusiasm with Megan Hopman. Subscribe, check out our blog, and learn more at MaximumEnthusiasm.com.